Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. You may have heard of Philip Johnson's Glass House, built in 1949 in New Canaan, Connecticut. Its construction marked the beginning of a tide wave of modern architecture in Connecticut after World War II. The post-war generation of American architects threw out the old historical styles and invented a new way of conceiving buildings as sleek sculptural forms. Their work sprouted in New Canaan, Hartford, New Haven, and Litchfield. In this episode, we hear from two passionate architecture fans, Robert Gregson and Peter Swanson, who have crisscrossed the state in search of these mid-century landmarks. Hear about little-known 1957 Frank Lloyd Wright masterpiece, Tirana, featured on the cover of Connecticut Explored Spring 2018 issue, and other examples they've found. This is Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored for Grading the Nutmeg. Today we're going to hear about Connecticut's mid-century modern architecture with my guests Bob Gregson and Peter Swanson. If you have your copy of the Spring 2018 issue of Connecticut Explored on your coffee table, as I do, then you've seen the magnificent cover photo of a Frank Lloyd Wright house. This photo and many others that have graced the pages of Connecticut Explored, as well as several articles, are the work of artist Bob Gregson. With a BFA from the Hartford Arts School and an MFA from the Art Institute of Chicago, Bob's work is found in many prestigious collections, and he's a member of the Silver Mine Guild in New Canaan. My second guest is Peter Swanson, a physician who fell in love with modern architecture as a child, attending schools in Litchfield designed by Marcel Breuer. Over the years, his interest expanded to all forms of modern architecture, and he was instrumental in preserving the Armstrong Rubber Company building, also known as the Pirelli Building, or that big concrete block in the Ikea parking lot in New Haven. Bob and Peter have toured and photographed modern buildings throughout the country and have restored their own mid-century modern house. Bob and Peter take us on a tour of modern architecture around the state. So we're going to talk about uh, modern architecture in Connecticut. And of course, everybody thinks about New Canaan, Connecticut, because uh, that's the place where the uh, Harvard Five, the group that from Harvard, uh, landed. And uh, that group, of course, included uh, the great Marcel Breuer, uh, Elliot Noyes, Philip Johnson, Landis Gores, and John Johansson. And, you know, what was interesting about them is that they not only were great architects, building architects. They created furniture. Uh, they created branding. Johnson created skyscrapers. Uh, Johansson did the uh, embassy. They did, a, they did a lot of different things. So it wasn't just, uh, just architecture. Uh, it was furniture. It was modernism in general. But we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Connecticut modernism. And Connecticut's interesting because if you ever think of Connecticut, the image of Connecticut from the uh, 1930s and 1940s, you're going to think of Mr. Blandings building his dream house, that wonderful colonial house, and uh, or, or Christmas in Connecticut where uh, Barbara Stanwyck is, uh, g- goes into this beautiful colonial 
actually a colonial modern if you look at it, but a colonial house in Connecticut. Or even in the 50s with um, uh, Lucy and Desi, they moved to Westport. And of course, they had their colonial house. So everybody had a colonial house. The interesting thing about them, though, is that you, you realize that there was more to it than just going to a colonial house. I mean, Mr. Blandings was uh, a, 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 from New York. He he was a um, ad agency, so he the, he was sophisticated. I think Lucy and Desi, you know, Desi was the band leader in New York, or Barbara Stanwyck was the writer for the paper. So in other words, they 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 had more sophistication. They were beyond just colonialism. They were very progressive ideas. And there were, in the 1930s and the 1940s, progressive people, people who really pushed the envelope about um, uh, modernism. So I'm going to talk about uh, 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 my partner, Peter Swanson, and I will be talking about uh, these people. I'm going to begin with a guy named uh, Chick Austin, A. Everett Austin, and he was the director of the Wadsworth Athenaeum, became director at 27 in 1927, and um, he was a very interesting guy, a Harvard guy, again, more Harvard people. He was uh, friends uh, with Philip Johnson and Alfred Barr and uh, Lincoln Kirsten and um, Eddie Warburg, they were all uh, in on, on this idea of, of modernism and not only modern architecture, but modern, modernism in general and how that changes uh, socially. So you've got, you know, dance and you've got design and, uh, and you've got, of course, Alfred Bart, who was the great head of a Museum of Modern Art. But Chick really was something special to all of them because he really kind of showed them the way. And Chick was not only in, um, interested in modern architecture, but he was in photography, painting, design. And he, of course, he built that wonderful house on Scarborough Street in uh, Hartford. If you've ever been dr driven by it, you've seen this house that looks like a stage front. It's a, it's a Palladian uh, uh, villa that he had been inspired when he went on his honeymoon uh, to Venice. Uh, but inside, uh, there is this wonderful Bauhaus, international-style bathroom. And he, so there were hints that he had interests in, in, in modernism in general. And already, uh, uh, Connecticut had started with the uh, Frederick Vanderbilt Field House in 1930, designed by Lascaz, and it's in New Hartford, this wonderful Bauhaus house so uh, he had he, and he knew Lascaz because uh, Chick had done a, a workshop or a, a panel discussion on modernism and Lascaz was part of that so he wanted to build the first modern museum in the United States uh, and uh, he knew there was money he knew there was money from um, the uh, Avery's family uh, he was young he, he uh, was you know, wanted to uh, to leave a mark, so he decided he was going to build this wonderful modern museum. Well, of course, the uh, board of trustees is a little bit skittish, so the exterior ended up being a little softer, a little deco. But the interior is truly a Bauhaus uh, or international style modern. And uh, if you if you were there, you'll see these overhanging balconies, cantilevered, this wonderful atrium. It, it truly is a, it, it, it was a wonderful and amazing place that really 
started to embed the idea of modernism in Connecticut. If you, and uh, it certainly had uh, uh, great shows there on Picasso and Dolly. He did theater pieces. He had a first theater. So it was pretty special. In fact, his office was this incredible place with Marcel Breuer furniture and uh, as well as Miro paintings. Uh, really quite an unusual guy. Uh, and I talked a little bit about the theater, and you think of uh, Four Saints and Three Acts, uh, written by Gertrude Stein, and it, it is it, it's a it's a great uh, event there at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and uh, and they had this big opening, and Bucky Fuller came up with his Dymaxion car, that one thing that looks shaped like a bullet with three wheels, and so it was like it was like a celebration of of being modern. Next time I'm going to talk a little bit about New Haven which was another place. And we've got Mayor Dick Lee, uh, who, Richard Lee, who was a friend of uh, the Kennedys, was well-connected. But in the, in the 50s, when he became mayor, New Haven, like all cities, was, there was a, a certain tired blight that was happening. And um, uh, certainly New Haven was was affected by that and dick thought well how do i fix that the salvation is modern architecture you know having great modern architecture will change the feeling the the whole spirit of the city and he became a great architecture fan now i'm not saying that that's the correct way to do it but there's this kind of optimism about architecture in those days then the other thing that happened in in um, the 50s and the 60s was the highway. The uh, the great I-95 came through through New England and had to come through New Haven. Well, New Haven, the nine squares are uh, which are built very close to the harbor would have been destroyed. The downtown uh, area would have been destroyed if, with the highway. So the solution landfill. So they, they built um, 120 acres of landfill on the edge of the uh, city into the harbor, filled with rock and, and gravel, and uh, then built the highway so that at least skirted, skirted the city. It was, it was a great place that they were going to put office buildings. They had to do low office buildings because of the, uh, you couldn't drill down too far, but there was one space that uh, Dick Lee wanted to um, to transform, and that was the the corner where the Pirelli Building was. He wanted to have something that was going to be an icon, something you, when you drove by the city, you would say, "There's New Haven." And uh, I know Peter Peter and I helped save this building many years ago, but I'll just start with explaining that uh, Dick Lee wanted, as I say, a, a visual statement, and the Armstrong people wanted just a, a little office building. So Dick Lee wanted to put it up in, a, you know, a, a tower. So the solution was from Marcel Breuer to create, a, to jack it up into the air and have this open space. And uh, so you've got this building teetering over over a base. And, I, and it's very interesting. I know Peter has been, got to be friends with uh, Robert Gatchy, the co-architect. And uh, you can describe a little bit of how it was constructed. Uh, the and building is really on landfill, as you said, and it was very difficult to 
build anything uh, very tall, and an array of pilings were driven into the uh, into the landfill. And if you look at the building, there are stair towers on the sides of the building. They were they were first with uh, poured concrete and reached their full height, and then a skeleton of steel was applied uh, from the top down. And it's really a bridge construction, like a truss. And the floors are suspended, not built from below. And then the skin is applied to the outside, which are the iconic uh, panels, precast concrete panels. So Breuer in their design, every building he did uh, of this nature had a different panel design that was iconic for the building. The building uh, had two portions, a research and development two-story uh, space on the ground uh, level and then the office tower above it with about two stories of a gap in between and it made a gateway building for the city which is what the mayor wanted and what eventually Armstrong got and probably wanted uh, although their real their real objective was a very small building when you go, go on the highway the highway is just about at the level of that gap and so you're looking through the building at the skyline of the highway of the city so it really served uh, as a great welcome to, to, the, to New Haven. One interesting story was that uh, the Armstrong folks were very focused on a sign, and they couldn't wait to put a sign on the roof saying Armstrong Rubber. And Breuer was not a big fan of putting a big sign on the roof. It would destroy the, uh, the design of the building. And there was a, a little bit of a problem in the zoning, which forbade any kind of uh, freestanding signs. So faced with that problem, if you drive by now, which of course is an IKEA building, you'll see a, a very big freestanding concrete structure, which once bore the name Armstrong Rubber. On the ground portion, there's a little door, and on the plan, it's labeled Gardener's Cottage. So it's a uh, it's a uh, a habitable space on the ground level with a gigantic. Uh, billboard on top of it. And so it, it met the needs of being a freestanding structure and not a sign. And as it's been uh, uh, taken over now as a, as a big advertising space for Ikea, but it was uh, a, a very uh, prominent sign for many years that displayed Armstrong rubber and later Pirelli. So, uh, you know, uh, Dick Lee really, uh, as I say, was a, a great fan of modern architecture. And he worked with Yale. I mean, Yale, if you look around, you've got this uh, great Klein Tower uh, Philip Johnson did. You've got um, all sorts of buildings by Saarinen. And Paul Rudolph became the, the uh, head of uh, the architecture department at Yale and built these in, in incredible buildings. So many buildings here in New Haven are, are really uh, wonderful masterworks by him. I always love his parking garage, which is this wonderful sculpture that I've, I've always loved the, the look of it. The Yale uh, School of Architecture has is, is got this wonderful... Uh, kind of late modernist. It's a it's a kind of a cubist modernist building, but he he gave it this texture, this this um, bush hammered yeah con- uh, concrete. He had a, I guess he had the forms, and then they had people hitting the very uh, labor intensive. Yes. The uh, and of course John Johansson. Uh, there was a there, there was a lot of re- redevelopment. Uh, John Johansson did this wonderful church in the, on the Dixwell Avenue area, which is this. You know, he, 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 with bridges and, and, and shapes and uh, panels. And, you know, I, I don't know h- how people perceive it today, but 
it really is, it's still a wonderful building and we, I just hope that it'll be restored and saved. Certainly there's that wonderful um, Beinecke Library at, the, at Yale. It was supposed to have um, what kind, what kind onyx. of onyx and there was not enough onyx in the world to, to, for, for the exterior. The reason why they wanted onyx or they wanted some thin material was the light came through the stone, stone and, and created this wonderful uh, textured uh, interior, and it also protected the books. So uh, if you look now, there's a great marble exterior, and then you go inside and you see it, see the light coming through the veins of the, the marble. And then in the interior, of course, is this wonderful jewel box in the center with, uh, with all of the books, and it all lit up. And so it's a real celebration of um, modernism and the, and the rare books. And history. And the, and the history. Of course, we have Louis Kahn, the great Louis Kahn, one of his first buildings that he built, the Yale Art Gallery, uh, and one of the last buildings built and finished after his death, which is the British Art Center right across the street. One of my favorite architects, though, is uh, Eero Saarinen, and I don't know uh, exactly how to define Eero Saarinen because he, he was so special. Uh, if you look at Ingalls' rink, which is the uh, hockey rink, the whole idea of creating the spine in the center and then hanging the roof off it. it it's kind of like the Dulles Airport in, in Washington. You know, he, he loved suspending these, the, using construction to, to define the way the building looks. And finally, we, we have Kevin Roach, who was the successor to Aero Saarinen's office because Aero died uh, early on. And, and you'll notice the w wonderful Knights of Columbus building with those towers, those circular towers that go up on, on all four corners and the building is kind of suspended from the center. So you really, you know, you go from Chick Austin now to Dick Lee and his, the way he's changed the, the landscape of New Haven and the way people see modernism. We want to talk a little bit about not a city, but a, a rural area of Litchfield. And uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, Rufus Stillman and Andy Gagarin. They worked together and they created uh, modern buildings, houses, uh, and you might subtitle this Breuer's uh, area here. Uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about Rufus and how he got to be inspired. Rufus was probably the closest thing to a patron an architect could ever want. Rufus and Leslie, his wife, had seen the uh, house built at at the Museum of Modern Art that uh, Breuer did as a, as a model in 1949. And though that was not their only exposure to Breuer, it was the beginning and they began to speak with him about doing a house in Litchfield. And after uh, a few discussions, uh, they came to a, a design that was built off the very colonial street, North Street in, in Litchfield, uh, which is uh, full of federal revivals and this house is set just a little bit beyond the, beyond the street. You can't quite see it without going down the driveway. It was built uh, on a very large uh, five-acre lot, and after about three or four years, they discussed with their friends, the Huvels, about building a house also for them on the same lot. And the stipulation was he would give the lot to the Huvels if they chose a modern architect and they chose uh, John Johansson. And so in 1953, the other house was built, and now you have two houses that were built by Breuer and 
Johansson living quite close to each other, looking like uh, they were been there for, for uh, a long time. The Stillmans went on to commission a second house from Breuer, Stillman II, and eventually Stillman III. And ironically, uh, to complete the circle, at the end of their lives, they went back and bought Stillman I again, and they lived in Stillman I until they died. It was a very interesting cycle that they made in Litchfield, and in the process developed three very beautiful homes. One of the things, too, that I, I love about this time was the uh, group, the community involved. Um, uh, certainly they were friends with uh, various artists, and one of them uh, was Alexander Calder. And uh, if you look at these old pictures of these houses, you'll see, see Calders hanging all over the place. And one of the nice things is uh, Rufus, uh, in his first house, uh, built a wall at the end of his pool, and he had this mural designed by Calder. And uh, it, it's kind of a very funny, um, it's tame to us now, but it's probably a very risky mural in, in the, uh, the 50s. I guess Rufus's father-in-law did not like that mural. So Calder came and he designed this very lovely mural with a pyramid in a circle and, uh, you know, all these things floating around. And uh, so that that is the mural that's there, although uh, the owners who we've gotten to know or who restored the house painted the other mural on the back, so there's a secret mural. It's wonderful to, to go there because, of the, uh, because it, there were so many uh, artists... Uh, Zanti uh, Shuinsky, uh, who was a Bauhaus artist, painted murals on the sides of the fireplace. So, you know, it was a very rich kind of life, experimental life. It really was uh, kind of a very playful, and, and, and it wasn't uh, the way we think, think of it now as very precious. It was really, that's the way they, they all lived. The other thing that both of them did was they built, they bu- well, they both built great Breuer houses. Uh, uh, certainly uh, Rufus did one, but then Andy decided to do uh, an enormous kind of a villa. Uh, I think it's about 10,000 feet. Yeah, 12,000. 12,000 yeah. square feet. And, and Andy was, what, Russian royalty? Yes. And had this uh, incredible house four children. So he had this enormous house, which he wanted to build because he wanted to entertain as well. The upper level, uh, which mostly the living and the dining and the entertaining level, and then below he had the uh, bedrooms for the, the kids. It was on a hillside, so, so you could access the upper level from one side of the house. It went through all sorts of, of renovations lately. I mean, it was really uh, saved. It, it, for a while, sadly, it was abandoned, and uh, it looked a lot like Grey Gardens, that movie where everything was grown up over it. But now uh, a new owner has come and, and saved it and restored it. And really, it's now become a real emblem of, of how modernism could be or should be, you know, when, when it's it's finally loved. It also houses the, one of the great fireplaces. Uh, Breuer loved to do these wonderful sculptural fireplaces. And this one kind of is this organic shape, bush-hammered concrete. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the great, great things that, are, that uh, he, he did. But the other thing they did was they did corporates. They, they, Andy and, and Rufus were business partners. 
and they were uh, the heads of the the Torin Corporation. And Torin in Torrington needed a building, and who do you go to? Marcel Breuer. And they built what is it? Buildings all over the world. Yes. So they were not only great patrons with their houses, but now they're corporations. Plus, they were on the school board, and they built was it three. Three schools. Three schools, the high school, the grammar school. And Northfield School. Yeah. And when I was five years old, I attended the first inaugural class at the Litchfield School System. My school was in Bantam, and uh, I entered the kindergarten in 55, and the school was newly designed, uh, shocking in its, uh, in its construction, beautiful to me, and I think it formed my aesthetic from that point forward. And I was in that school system for the next 12 years, and uh, it, was, it was truly a, uh, a privilege to be there. Uh, during that time, John Johansson was also uh, commissioned to do a junior high school, which I did not uh, attend. It came after, uh, after me, but another beautiful, beautiful school that was uh, built on the site of the high school. So the educational system in Bantam, Northfield, and Litchfield were pretty much... Uh, designed by Breuer and, and uh, uh, Johansson. You were thinking you were going to go to one of the old schools, but then the new school, of course, came with big glass windows. It was windows, a revelation. Yeah. Uh, Built-ins. It was a totally different... All one level. Uh, every room had a door to the outside, which was utilized uh, frequently, and uh, uh, it, made a, it made a great impression on me. Marcel Breuer did an enormous amount of, of work in the Litchfield area. However, Rufus's sister decided that she wanted to build a house, but she didn't want to, I guess, maybe sibling rivalry, who knows. But uh, she built a house by Edward Larrabee Barnes, and it was a really wonderful house. It's kind of a what, what he called a platform house. So he would create this kind of raised platform, and he would integrate the house into that platform and have interior spaces, exterior spaces, so that the exterior became part of the architecture. Uh, integrated into the architecture of the house. It's a wonderful, a wonderful house. You know, it's hard. I feel like I need to transport everybody in uh, uh, like Star Trek and to, to see how these spaces work. As Peter said, Breuer did other houses for Stillman. But, you know, Connecticut really has, has one Breuer building, which is kind of a secret Breuer building. Friends bought a cottage designed by Marcel Breuer. We did not know it existed. It was in, in back of, of Stillman Three, way up in the woods. And uh, Rufus got Marcel Breuer to give him his plans for uh, his Wellfleet cottage. So this house was built on the basis of the Wellfleet cottage. Uh, and friends bought it, but it had been altered over the years. It had been uh, enlarged, kitchens had been put in. It just was not pure anymore. So our friends who restored Stillman One decided to restore it to what it really should be. And they, they, they took the cottage, they turned it so that it had a, a great view over the hills of Litchfield, and then actually built a part of it that Breuer had done for, what is it, the, for his, his cottage. own cottage. Right. So that there's this lovely, lovely, simple, modest 
piece of architecture, but it's an elegant piece of architecture. That's, the, that, that's one thing I have to say about modernism. I know people complain, they say, oh, the kitchens are too small or the bathrooms are too small. But really, that's what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be efficient. They were supposed to be a, a, almost like cut away all that excess in, excess in your life and then live in this kind of, I'm almost going into a spiritual way, but, but there is this lovely way of, of finding kind of the, the essence of, of your life within a, a piece of modern architecture. One, one more piece to talk about in Litchfield is Elliot Noyes, who did the library, which looks somewhat similar to his own home in New Canaan. It's a wonderful connection to the Oliver Woolcott House, right? And uh, they he built this library in the rear, which does not fight. In fact, it complements the colonial building. It's connected by a causeway to the original building, and exists quite separately, but in harmony with the uh, with the colonial building. Yeah. So you know you you've got those three areas, but there's a lot in Connecticut that we don't talk about. There's a, a wonderful. Uh, architect named Robert Carroll May, who designed a few buildings. Uh, Robert Carroll May was a, uh, a Frank Lloyd Wright apprentice, and one of the buildings uh, that he built, uh, or houses he built, was in West Hartford. It still exists. It's in beautiful shape. And he built a few other buildings in Connecticut, but like all pieces of uh, modern architecture, especially from unsung modern architects, they fall in disrepair, and then they are are taken for granted and, and torn down. The uh, other person that, who we enjoy is King Louis Wu. King Louis Wu was an architect in New Haven, taught at Yale, did some beautiful, simple buildings. He did this wonderful building in North Haven based kind of on nine squares. Uh, and each square was either a dining room, a living room, dining area, kitchen in the, and bathrooms in the center, bedrooms around the edge. But the uh, wonderful thing about it is that there is a Joseph Albers fireplace. And Joseph Albers designed several fireplaces for King Louis Wu buildings. This one is, is probably the most special. It actually was reproduced at the Cooper Hewitt when they designed, did a show on Joseph and Annie Albers. The other person who to talk about uh, in Orange, uh, Connecticut, is Henry Miller. He was a Yale architecture student, did his thesis building in 1948, I believe, and had that building built, had that design built. And he lived in there for the rest of his life. So a wonderful house. It was just sold because uh, uh, Henry and his wife are gone now. You walk in, you are on the second level, and you look right through this entire glass wall to the back, and then you walk down the stairs, and there's the living, dining, kitchen area. Uh, again, the bedrooms are upstairs. It really is quite amazing. In fact, what is it? They they had a tour. When they first uh, built the home, they had a tour for the curious that came and had to spend, I think, 25 cents to tour yeah, it. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And they netted thousands and thousands, thousands of dollars. Thousands, <laughs> I'm afraid. Thousands of people came and waited online to see this this new building, which is... Uh, Looks now, as beautiful today, actually, as it did then. Yeah, yeah. The, the uh, family really loved that building. Well. So, so I think if you're going to go out there, there's a lot 
for you guys to see in Connecticut that you you know houses are hard to get into but for example churches they're they're easy Stanford has this wonderful church by Wallace K Harrison you can go visit it it's it's concrete it's called the fish church it's shaped like a fish but it's got this concrete shell with uh, glass embedded in it it's 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 hard to describe visit it okay so there's a church another church it's in Rowayton and uh, it's it's this wonderful curve and uh, it hard to describe except that it swoops around and it kind of into a, a tight spiral all it, wooden in construction and then in, in Hartford, you have this wonderful church. looks like a tent. It's on Bloomfield Avenue by Victor Lundy. And it, it, you should go in there. It really, is, it, is, it really is. looks like this kind of tent that's just been put up. It, it's got these wonderful low-slung roofs. So the, the churches are easy to go to. There's a wonderful building, which is in um, Essex, Ulrich uh, Franson. Uh, John Johansson, there's a wonderful John Johansson in Darien. Darien. So there, it goes on. They're 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 all, they're peppered through the uh, through Connecticut. We we didn't talk about New Canaan because New Canaan is so fabulous and everybody talks about it. But there is one incredible uh, structure by Frank Lloyd Wright, which uh, Peter and I were eager to see for many many years. Very private. It was in an interior lot, and no one knew anything about it. Uh, it was called Tirana, but it was the Raywards who had had it built in the early 1950s. Uh, and again, it was was one of Frank Lloyd Wright's kind of Usonian homes. The, the Raywards loved it. It was a, a solar hemicycle, which means that the, the exterior wall, the main wall, was kind of curved so the sun would follow the, the line of the house. Uh, it was on the Naroten River, so it was kind of really integrated into the environment. Over the years, this relatively small house was enlarged several times. When it was first built, it was this enormous room with the living, dining, kitchen area in it, and, and off to the side, a, a small bedroom. And then Wright designed an uh, extension, more bedrooms, and then finally another wing to the house. Wright died in 1959, and after the house was sold, uh, the next owner wanted to enlarge it again, so they got William Wesley Peters, who was Frank Lloyd Wright's son-in-law and kind of heir to the Taliesin Associates. Wes really was this master engineer and worked on a lot of Wright buildings. So he designed an interior garden and uh connected the house into looped looped the house because the house had two wings connected the final wing and then uh also put a, an esplanade to the side of the house which ran out to a caretaker's quarters and carport the house is really quite stunning i mean it it really is unbelievable when you when you look at it because uh, when you you walk inside, of course, like any right house, it's this low little interior, and you're uh, you, you turn to the right, and this living area explodes. The ceiling is is tall, and there were um, clear story windows bringing light in on one side, and then the curved glass on the other. Lots of built-ins, and, and one of the uh, most marvelous fireplaces, big fireplace 
with this kettle in it that it all designed by Wright. And and I did get to talk to uh, Jennifer Raywood, who is, grew up there with her uh, sister, Victoria, and she, she mentioned how she loved the house, uh, that Frank Lloyd Wright would often come to visit on weekends, because uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was uh, in New York doing the Guggenheim, and I guess he would take a break and drive up to Connecticut and have lunch with the Raywoods. He also designed a, a small little playhouse for the girls uh, so that they could go in and there's a little ladder which goes up to the uh, the top of it and they could kind of secretly play up up on top of it and get a view of the um, of the river. So they, they had a great time uh, as part of this house. So uh, uh, if you ever get to uh, visit it, it's great, but you can uh, see my photos and, and the article in the... Connecticut Explored magazine. Want to see photos of many of the buildings discussed in this episode? You can find the link to Bob's Connecticut Explored photo essay on Connecticut Moderns in the show notes, as well as the link to Peter's feature article on the New Haven modernist ceramicist Legardo Tackett, both on ctexplored.org. Bob and Peter, thank you for sharing your expertise and giving us some great ideas for Connecticut staycations. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Robert Gregson and Peter Swanson. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities. Visit cthumanities.org.